Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with David Fear and Brittany Spanos, and we're going to talk about a movie that's coming out as we speak, that is out as we speak, because I just got out of a screening of it, A Star is Born. This is a good movie. This is this this is a really good movie. You sound surprised. I'm delighted. I'm not surprised. To be honest, as soon as it was announced mm-hmm. that it was happening, I was like, Gaga's gonna win an Oscar. <laughs> Before <laughs> like like I didn't even bother. I was ready to to just Wait, like even like yes. long ago? Yeah, as soon as I heard she was doing it, I just from my own experience of her and my sort of faith in her and just like I was like, this is perfect. I actually, I envisioned the whole thing. I was like, oh, it's going to be like no makeup. And it's going to be sitting there and she's going to like, and there's going to be like some moment where she's brought out on stage and it all came to pass. It's just so, it's just one of those things that works so well inherently, even if he had kind of fucked it up. And the truth is he didn't screw it up at all. Bradley Cooper did an amazing job both Mm -hmm. directing it and co-starring in it. You guys love this movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so, yeah. Brittany, you, you've seen it like eight times already, I think. I've seen it twice. <laughs> saw it last night, saw it last week. Gonna, I will make it to eight, though. Don't worry. Uh-huh. <laughs> what do you most deeply uh, respond to in it? I mean, I was always a fan of the Streisand, A Star is Born. And so I really love that the narrative and just kind of like music industry type movies anyway. And so I'm always kind of prone to those. But I've been following this since it was like Clint Eastwood, Beyonce, when they were first talking about it. Like, what was that, a decade ago when they were first in talks to make that movie. So I've been waiting to see what would happen with it, if, if it would ever happen. And I was kind of like not really holding my breath that it would be made anytime soon, that it would be well-written. Like we were, there was like a lot of questions that I had about how it, it would, how they would translate this story Can to Can we now. just say though, uh, like from the director of Gran Torino and the woman who gave us all the single ladies, <laughs> can you imagine what that movie would have been? I know. And I think it was Bradley Cooper was in talks to play that, the male yeah, lead and, in that he, as well. He mentions in that really, really amazing mm-hmm. New York Times profile mm-hmm. how he just didn't feel like he'd earned the right to do it. He hadn't lived enough life to do it. He hadn't put enough grit on there. Yeah. And then he looks himself in the mirror one day and sees his face and goes, I'm ready. I'm ready to do it. <laughs> so I, I've been waiting for waiting to see what would happen. And I mean, like you said, like Gaga, I, I figured that she would be great in it. I think she's always been a fantastic performer. And it was always a question of how they would translate the narrative to now. And I think there's a lot of things that they maintained that was really special. And they took out a lot of the things that just wouldn't translate and it made sense. Like everything about it makes sense for right now. What did you like about him? Oh, man. Uh, I like the fact that Bradley Cooper, who I got to be honest, is like an actor that I've never really liked or disliked much, um, is actually really wonderful in this. I love the fact that we sort of knew Gaga could act, but I don't think we knew that she was really a first rate actress, which I think she proves here beyond a shadow of a doubt. I love the fact that Cooper is not treating this as a vanity project, that he actually seems to have a vision behind the camera. There's one, um, I don't want to spoil stuff, there's one thumpingly obvious scene involving a billboard near the first like 10 minutes of the film where you're sort of like, okay. And then there's a moment where he and, um, he and Gaga are in a, uh, like a, a grocery store late at night, like a Ralph's kind of place. And it's all this neon lit thing, and he's sitting there and they're buying... Um, they're buying something to put on her hand because she's punched somebody. Again, I don't want to give away too many spoilers. But he's framed himself. He's framed this character, this Jackson main character, against an entire wall of liquor bottles. And it's done so beautifully and done in a way that it doesn't like hit you over the head thumpingly obvious that I think that was the moment where they really had me, where I was like, oh, there's an actual like filmmaker behind the camera here. Um, I love the way it uses music. I mm-hmm. think that first hour is perfect. I think there's an authenticity to it. I think there's a 
an ambitiousness in trying to like have this warhorse showbiz melodrama and make it like a proper sincere melodrama, but also make it realistic in a lot of ways. And so you can kind of feel that these characters are real. Um, it's just such a such a stunning achievement from people who I did not think were capable of pulling this off, frankly. It's a nice sort of it's like an old fashioned movie, you know, it, it, it in a lot of ways. Yeah, it mm-hmm. really, you know, but in, in the best possible way. And before we dig into deeper into the whole thing, because there's a lot to get into, uh, we just wanted to talk about the lineage of A Star is Born. And, and of course, it, it wasn't originally set in, in the world of music. The, the first one was in 1937. Yeah, there's a ni- it actually goes back even further. There's a film called What Price Hollywood from 1932 <laughs> that was directed by George Cukor, who would end up doing the 54 version. Uh, that is the the exact same story to the point that there were there were rumblings. He was supposed to do the 37 version and he ended up not doing it because he thought it was too similar. You can you can read about this in your film history books, kids. Uh, but the first official version in 37 is very much like a uh, a classic Hollywood golden age of the studio system kind of movie. It also plays into this myth that, you know, all you really need to do is show up in L.A. and sit in Schwab's drugstore counter and someone's going to discover you and you're going to become a star. You pointed out that, that Dorothy Parker co-wrote the script to that one? Yeah, there, I think she's one of among three writers in there, which is why you get these great lines where somebody's talking about Frederick March's character. He's the older guy who's like the famous movie star who's kind of succumbed to booze. And he, she, uh, I can't remember who, which character says it, but there's a line where he goes, uh, uh, this acting really seems to be getting in the way of his drinking. <laughs> and you're like, that's portable. That's the portable Dorothy Parker right there. Uh, and Janet Gaynor plays the female role. You know, she's the young ingenue movie star who he kind of helps up on the way as he's plummeting down. I mean, it's amazing when you go back and watch it now for the little you know, creaks they have here and there for 1937 American filmmaking. It's um, it's just it sticks to that template so beautifully. It just sets it up that you can kind of see like, oh yeah, I can see where this is. This is one of the seven stories that we can keep going back to, Hollywood style. Mm-hmm. And then so the the next one, the 54 version. Yeah, which is probably the most famous version. Uh, it was kind of designed by this producer named Sid Luft, who was I think he was married to Judy. He was married to Judy Garland at the time, and she had not been doing well. She had already kind of uh, had this descent into her sort of pills and slurring era. And he was like, this is going to be the great big comeback for you. And he set this project up for her and James Mason. And uh, she was just, I guess, erratic would be the word most people use when you talk about how she was during the filming. And the film ended up getting, it didn't do well. I think it was like originally a two and a half hour cut and the studio ended up taking a half hour out of it and then chucking the negative, essentially reusing it to get the silver out of the out of the prints, and there's this like half this lost half hour of that Star Is Born that no one's been able to find. But obviously, like when you watch it now, it's considered like a 1950s Hollywood classic. Uh, it's amazing. I think her performance in it is so raw and beautiful that the song that she does, I think it's called "The Man Who Gets Away," um, is just an amazing bit of like Garlandia. I have a, I have a lot of I have a huge massive soft spot for this movie. And then. We get to 1976 with uh, Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. And one of the great lost sort of alternate universe movies would be the one where it was Elvis Presley. Because that, oh that, God, yeah. that, that almost happened. And the colonel didn't want Elvis to play someone in decline. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine. I, I just, that would have been spectacular. <laughs> but it didn't happen. Instead, Chris Christopherson. And the, the, the movie is the director himself wrote a piece 
published a story about how much he hated making it before the movie came out. I read this. It's incredible. It's it, You could say it's inconceivable now. It also was inconceivable then. He just was really pissed off. There was a lot of... The Barbara Streisand's ego was a, was an issue at, at that point. I think that's like saying the Titanic was going <laughs> to run into some rough waters there. Uh, it was essentially designed by, by Streisand and her boyfriend, uh, this hairdresser turned producer, John Peters, who's a bit of a Hollywood legend, um, as a star vehicle for her. And they ended up getting Chris Christopherson for the uh, the male lead. And it's very, if you watch it again, I actually just rewatched it a couple of nights ago. And it's amazing how I think the ratio of beautiful close-ups of Streisand versus the screen time that Christopherson gets is something like seven to one. <laughs> she brought her own wardrobe. There's actually an amazing screen credit in the end credits that says, uh, Barbara Streisand's clothes from dot, dot, dot. Her closet. <laughs> she just he seems to have outfit changes about every five seconds. There's a scene where they're, her and Christofferson have gone out to this like this 80 acre, you know, it's this desolate piece of land that they're going to build their dream ranch on. And so it cuts to a montage of them building the ranch. And at one point it, she's wearing a, a white sleeveless Superman T-shirt with white short shorts, giving the this gesture to back a tractor up. And then it cuts to them like taking lumber off a truck while she's dressed like a 19th century newsboy. <laughs> she literally changes costumes something like six times in this like, you know, two minute montage of them constructing a house. <laughs> and Brittany, you love the uh, there's a magazine reporter character that you're fond oh, of. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, just because the original a Star is Born film, like the older ones before this one are kind of rooted in jealousy and all of the narratives are about this veteran aging artist is grows jealous of the star that he has helped birth. Like he's seen her become successful and then he's also failing. And especially in the Chris Christopherson, Barbara Streisand one, the veteran rock star is, I mean, so fueled by jealousy for most of it. And when there's like a Rolling Stone journalist that comes that kind of starts the end of the film and starts like the big climax of the film and, she comes and she wants to report a story on Barbara Streisand's character and he gets jealous and sleeps with her and then he crashes. We, we should point out, too, that she doesn't just show up at his house. Yeah. She shows up topless in his pool. Yeah. Because <laughs> she's as groovy. All journalists do. She's very groovy. Yeah, that's how, you know. That's how it works. That's what, we all, that's what we all do. <laughs> just a, a side note on John Peters. As, as David knows, I'm obsessed with John Peters. John Peters somehow made it from being Barbara Streisand's hairdresser to, to, for a while, one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. And there's, in this article that the director wrote about how much he hated making the movie, there's a moment where Peter Frampton was the headliner for the outdoor concert that they film in the movie. And, and first, John Peters is very worried that there's not enough action in the movie, and he thinks that there should be a thing where the evil Knievel should jump over the crowd and a motorcycle is a whole thing with that. Because he's like, guys like me will get action. Then he moves on and he's like, but you know, we got Peter Frampton. He goes, I love Peter Frampton. He's like me. He's a street fighter. Now, this is utterly baffling, but the thing that delighted me about this is that Kevin Smith... Kevin Smith famously years later, year, many years later, two and a half decades later, tried to write a Superman script for John Peters. And, you know, it's it's uh, Kevin Smith's descriptions of this. He's kind of dined off this literally for, for a decade because it's so funny. Basically, one of the things that that John Peters said to Kevin Smith is, I think we're going to get along 
you're like me, you're a street fighter. So there's just something so fantastic about that. First but, thing you think of when you think of Kevin Smith. Absolutely. <laughs> but, I mean, in general, it is very 70s, very Barbara. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. very 70s. Very se- Like all the kind of concert scenes, all the music, it's very, very deep 70s like rock this is a movie in which gary Busey is literally the voice of reason yeah oh, i yeah. think this kind of tells you everything you need <laughs> to know about how crazy this film is and <laughs> and while there is um there is plenty of booze there too it also introduces this idea yeah. that the guy is a bit of a cokehead as well yeah and I, the film has this very kind of cokey feel in certain places too it feels very jittery and very 70s arena rock and very kind of post ultimate almost in some of those scenes where like people are like crowding up to the thing. There's a DJ that shows up in a helicopter mm-hmm. one time that Chris Christopherson ends up throwing a case of Jack Daniels at him. Yeah, he's so violent. So like, it's such an extreme. And I mean, having, I watched it for the first time in years, like right before I saw the newest film and it was just like kind of hard to watch with how violent he is towards everyone and how just like, I mean, his version of the alcoholic rock star is much more just like, even more off the rails and less inward, but just very And it feels like there's a lot aggressive. of Christofferson's own like outlaw country persona mm-hmm. in there as well. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, Evergreen, love theme from A Star is Born. <laughs> Stone classic, of course. I mean, it, the music in it is, you know, I think this movie has better music, I would dare yeah, to say. Yeah, I think the music from the Streisand one feels very like a extension of Barbara in the 70s, whereas this feels yeah. like... Gaga and Cooper are both embodying the actual characters and what the film is. Well, I, and I've kind of forgotten about this because I had not seen this, I, like you, yeah, I had not seen this movie in years and then I rewatched it, right? Uh, I rewatched it like a couple of nights ago and mm-hmm. I'd sort of forgotten that the big, uh, the big pull her on stage to have her moment during one of his show scenes, it doesn't happen near the beginning the way it does with the, the Gaga version. Mm-hmm. It happens right, almost right dead center. Yeah. And she gets up there and she sings this song that wouldn't necessarily be out of a place, like out of place for a show that Christofferson's character, and I think his band's called, I think it's like the John Howard Stedman Speedway. Oh <laughs> God, it's such a great 70s band name. It wouldn't necessarily be out of the, out of the pocket of that crowd. And then suddenly after that, and they're, they're applauding her wildly and oh my God, a star is born on the stage. She goes into this Latin tinged disco number. <laughs> And at which point you're sort of like, oh, this is Barbara. This is Barbara circa 76. Like, yeah. This is very much like, I got the hip trends. But <laughs> also they like booed her before when like she got on stage. Weren't people like throwing stuff when they, when she like walks on? They were throwing stuff, but you'll notice they don't throw stuff at her immaculate three-piece suit. Yes. <laughs> her three-piece for ladies suit. Very, very much avoided. One, one, of, one of five or six outfits she wears in that scene. <laughs> but let's hear Evergreen if we can. Soft as an easy chair. <laughs> I did this entire show so we could find a reason to play Barbara Streisand on a Rolling Stone show. <laughs> so we, I should I should mention I'm people can't see this out in the radio land, but I'm like 86 years old, and I remember like in the 70s when I was young, like you could not escape Evergreen. Like you turned on FM or AM radio, and Evergreen was playing on at least one station all the time for like a year and a half. They're massively popular. And speaking of Barbara, the other possibility would have been Neil Diamond, which would have been for the Chris Christopherson role. Apparently he was also up for it. And you would have had the uh, You Don't Bring Me Flowers moment many years uh, earlier. So that I would have liked to see that version. I wonder if that's why he ended up doing The Jazz Singer. If it was some sort of way to like, I didn't get a Star is Born, but there's this other creaky you know, movie from the golden age of Hollywood that I can remake as a star vehicle for me. Perhaps. <laughs> 
you know, there's a lot to get into. I, I would start by talking about where Bradley Cooper's performance is coming from. I, I was saying to these guys, what I really perceived was that Bradley Cooper plucked like 15 of Eddie Vedder's most defining personal mannerisms <laughs> and really used them to flesh out the character in a way that really impressed me. I mean, it, basically, this is based on my own time doing like actually interviewing Eddie Vedder and the truth is he spent five days following Eddie Vedder around and that's exactly what a what a smart actor does is you know even down to the jacket he was wearing but also like and when I first heard him speak I literally thought to myself oh my god he's doing Eddie Vedder crossed with Sam Elliott I didn't realize that Sam Elliott is in the movie playing his brother who he then the Sam Elliott character tells him he, that he stole his voice so it's, it's a the best it, line in the film it, it's, yeah. a, it's a very very but it's it's a very precise and impressive melange of those two people and it's just stuff like Eddie Vedder when I first interviewed him for my first cover story with him his voice was so kind of like deep and rumbly and, and soft that I was that it wasn't making the meter on my recorder move, you know? And that's what I, I really felt from Bradley Cooper's thing. He's like, I didn't even know he had that register in his voice. He was, he was talking he have super... To, yeah, he had to drop it like a mm -hmm. couple octaves, right? Yeah. Was, uh... Yeah, I don't even... I like, can't even remember what his normal voice sounds like anymore just because of like... He's just going to have to talk that way <laughs> for gonna now He's going to have on. to do that forever. <laughs> and then, you know, Gaga... And, and again, I'm, I can't help but draw from my personal experience. I did two cover stories with her. And what was really interesting is in some ways I really recognized she was you know sort of stripping down to her you know to, towards whatever her, her Stephanie self like her her actual self is there and then of course she's doing some acting on top of it but the funny thing is a lot of times you have an actor and actress playing someone who's much more sort of abnormal in a way that than they are in real life and in a way I felt like Gaga was as much as she was supposedly like stripping down, no artifice, taking off the makeup, she was acting like a much more sort of... <laughs> I don't think she was ever that person. Like The character in this movie is much more sort of like... I don't want to say down to earth, but just like... She was always just this kind of like artsy, freaky person, and this character isn't that. I mean, it's an aspect of her, this sort of like New York, Italian-American kind of thing, but it's interesting. Like She, she was basically, in short, she's a really good actress. Mm -hmm. And I will say that Andrew Dice Clay, as her father, really captured my experience of her actual dad in a really funny <laughs> in a really funny way. Her dad in real life poked me in the chest but like, keep it clean <laughs> about the story I was writing. So it was really, I thought that was delightful casting. But what did you make of, of Gaga particularly? Yeah, I think with that, there was a, a quote, and I don't know if it was from an interview with Bradley or with Gaga, but there was a great quote where it was just like, she performed this character as if she were, you know, herself currently and hadn't made it to where she is now. And I think that was something that, really struck me seeing the film just the idea of like this is someone who's not just like naive she's you know like 20 like just kind of trying to figure out if she can make it in the industry this is someone who's like grown up who's like you know tried and tried and tried hasn't made it has now settled into her life is trying to like make that work and still kind of has these dreams and so I think that's the character of Allie is like there's this lack of naivety to her and this lack of sort of like greenness to her where she's very confident like she's she's not like she doesn't lack self-awareness she doesn't lack the idea of like she knows jackson's an alcoholic from the moment she meets him she knows that there are these issues that she has to deal with like i think that's super important to the characters that there's this lack of like you're absolutely right and she yeah. wasn't playing her she wasn't playing a 22 year old she yeah. wasn't one of the things that was written in that was really clever and real is there's a moment her dad 
is more excited than she is mm -hmm. about this meeting. And she goes, Dad, it's not magic. I don't have that thing with you. Like, oh, I met someone famous. Now I'm famous. And like, how many people have had that? That's a real conversation, yeah. you know, that people have that because there always is that person who's like, oh, now you're going to hand them your screenplay or whatever. It's like, it doesn't work like that. And I yeah. love the, that was, I think what you were talking about, David, is that groundedness that, that, that had like, yeah. it was like three levels dug in of real groundedness of realism. Yeah, for a story that's not necessarily known for that or even <laughs> no. like necessarily works when you try to do that. I mean, it kind of needs to be this like massive suspension of disbelief Hollywood melodrama. Yeah. And there, to be fair, too, there are a number of pieces that require a suspension of disbelief here unless everybody <laughs> seems to be coming up with perfect arrangements for pop songs and you know, less than six hours. Well, yeah, we were talking about that. I mean, look, you know, before we mildly tease that, I, I will say that the realism of the backstage stuff I thought was great. I, it really captures that thing of like you're being like frantically like move through a backstage area yeah. to get to a Someone's thing. Like throwing Someone's walking at you. Yeah, throwing it. It's, like, <laughs> it's like, no, you're going the wrong way. It's this way, that way. And she almost, she almost gets like knocked down. I was like, okay, like, Clearly, someone's been backstage because that—that's what it's like. Because yeah. it's, it's not so much glamorous as like a little bit just disorienting and like it felt yeah, very, very, very chaotic. It's not since Spinal Tap have I seen a more accurate <laughs> depiction of of that sort of experience. I thought that was exactly, exactly right. And then, of course, exactly my experience. If you're standing by the side of the stage, they will always say, "Hey, come on and sing something." It happens, you know, almost almost every time I've ever been by the side of the stage. I remember like, when you did that duet with Katy Perry? Yeah, yeah it was cover it, story. It, it was amazing. But very you know, so, so that was very typical. But all that said, there is there is a thing where he she again and forgive us for spoilers. If you really don't want any spoilers, you can you know stop listening. But I, we, we won't spoil the ending or anything. But there's a bit where she had sung an acapella version of a song she had just you know written off the top of her head, and it's actually shallows, right? Yeah, it's shallow, which is a great song. And and then later. Very like six hours later, he's come up with a little arrangement for it, which she had never heard before. And extra verses. <laughs> and extra verses, written a whole extra verse. By arrangement, is like he wrote chords to it, wrote a whole thing. And somehow she's able to be pulled off the, the side of the, the stage and perfectly nail every bit of it <laughs> rhythmically and then like harmonize and then like improvise another thing. And it's just like, it's just like, wow, I, I guess all that rehearsing that people do is really pointless. <laughs> But, you know, again, obviously suspension of disbelief. It, it, this is like complaining about the, the spaceships making noise in Star Wars. It's, yeah. it's, it's just it's just a little it's, 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 it's just a little funny. It's, yeah. it's a little funny. I, I won't compare it to the scene in, in Britney Spears' Crossroads when she's writing, quote unquote, writing, not a girl, not yet a woman. But it does remind me about there's is it's always it's very difficult to do the like. I'm writing this song now. And frankly, that might be one of the reasons why they they sort of kept the soundtrack under wraps. Mm -hmm. Because the more you know the songs beforehand, the more potential for, for camp yeah. I think there is. It's just kind of occurring to me now. You want, and I think that's super smart because it you you then really get the sense of like, oh, it's these people, you know, creating in the moment to a, to a large extent. But let, let's hear Shallow. Tell me something, boy. Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? So the stylistic thing going on with Gaga is very interesting and very complicated. And there's a lot to talk about there. Maybe before we dive into that, because that's like a whole conversation, we should talk about what Bradley Cooper did, which is, you know, he made himself into a singer. And uh, he wrote, he co-wrote um, most of the songs that Jackson Maine sings. Was that probably on a, on a lyrical level, do we think? I, I would imagine so, right? Lyric, and I think, I mean, because those live performances, yeah. like production credits. Yeah, the, the Jason Isbell song that he sings, pretty much like those lyrics could have come from almost nobody but Jason Isbell. Yes, yeah. 
But uh, I mean, he he's very very he's really good at singing. I, I was totally convinced. I by was him. really shocked. I thought he was great. I mean, I, I don't believe, as one profile claimed, that he learned to play from scratch uh, guitar well enough to be a professional musician. That that's bullshit. Especially since they very carefully were showing. P- not much of his fingers when he was playing guitar. Uh, sometimes they show it, and and I think he particularly when he's playing lead guitar, they they were very careful to show not much of it. Like, don't come on, he did not. No, <laughs> no, he didn't. That doesn't you don't that doesn't happen. You don't learn in like six months well enough to be as good as a professional musician. It, no more than no more than Natalie Portman became a ballet dancer for real for Black Swan or whatever. These things don't happen. They, that's how they always sell it. But I it's read all, a profile that she was she trained hard enough that she could have been right. a professional Bolshoi dancer. <laughs> Right, it's almost as if this is what they're told to say in the profile. I don't know, <laughs> but um, but that said, so yeah, what's the Bradley Cooper, the uh, Let the Old Boys Die? Maybe it's time. That's yeah. the one written by Jason Isbell. That is such a fantastic song. Yeah. Let's hear that. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Takes a lot to change, man. Hell, it takes a lot to try. Yeah, I mean, it's Maybe such it's a, a Jason Isbell song, and, and Jason Isbell is so, so great. And uh, we were talking about, like, what genre Bradley's character falls into. I, I think you made a, a very good point. I think it's, um, I mean, just to kind of, like, compare him to, like, a modern one, like, Chris Stapleton, just sort of that, like, mostly country-leaning, but a little bit kind of, like, bluesy rock can definitely fill, you know, large venues. Like, that's that's the type of artist that... Chris Stapleton seems like the obvious one, and mm-hmm. it, it feels like there's weird sort of bits of, like, A.A. A. Bondi in there, mm-hmm. and guys like J. Roddy Walston and Sturgill Simpson. And... Yeah, Sturgill, for sure, too. Yeah. I guess it's like if one of these guys were older and somehow were, like, almost as big as Bruce Springsteen or something like that. That's where it's, like, it's, it's obviously a thing that doesn't quite exist, but it, it's, like, close enough that you don't wildly question Yeah, it. and yeah. I think there was... I think I read a lot of stuff that was just like saying that it like not like super like there's not a lot of people like him now, but he's like they think they indicated that he had been doing this for at least, you know, Seems like 20 years. Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, realistically, he'd be someone who like probably like had broken very early on and just obviously was still a lot of nostalgia. So then there's this thing of of Gaga and genres. Now she's it's all been part of a, of a thing of her becoming increasingly rootsy that's that's been a thing that's happening and this is of a piece with that mm-hmm. but there's a couple things going on in this movie because she starts out with Bradley Cooper's character singing with him in his sort of roots genre and then of course as the star is born she becomes uh, a, a more of a pop artist which I didn't really know was coming I thought maybe she was just going to be in his genre I didn't right. know they were going to do that and it's it's interesting Pop is is uh, depicted in a way that some might say in some might call rockist in that it, the movie is cr- is clearly sort of critical of the pop world. I think that he's his character is critical of it, and I think you're supposed to agree with him. In, yeah, in the, in the the way the movie presents it, I go back and forth on the purpose of the shift and what was kind of happening with. Gaga becoming pop and sort of Bradley Cooper's character's relation to all of that. But I mean, there is sort of a soft kind of flow of her going into like a more pop direction when she's doing Always Remember Us This Way and that kind of piano ballad that she does on stage by herself. That's kind of the first time you really see her doing something a little bit, you know, more independent and away from his style of music. And then once she gets onto her label and she's building her solo career, it moves like 
really fast into R&B pop kind of like kind of basic but I think the songs are very good but they're it's very far away from where she was it's a lot more R&B leaning a lot more just kind of like kind of silly lyrics about you know drinking too much and like also just you know sleeping around and we should never underestimate the ability of the music industry to take something good and screw it up. Exactly. But to me, it doesn't make sense that they put her... Like, I don't know how you would hear what she was doing on stage with Cooper's character, even when she does the solo piano thing, and in your wildest imagination think like, oh, I need to turn her into sort of like this you know, pop star that's going to do this kind of techno stuff with a bunch of dancers on stage and all that. And yeah. what's worse is that if you were to think, oh, well, they're just trying to like play to Gaga's strengths. They don't think that she's got a lot of range for that kind of stuff. So, of course, it's going to be that kind of character. A, the pop star is not very Gaga-esque. Mm-hmm. And B, she clearly has enough range. I mean, you look at that piece she did on the Oscars when she was you know, singing opera and stuff. You don't need to cage her into this thing. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I, when you and I had a conversation uh, right after you saw the film where you had said um, it actually would have made more sense if they had taken what she was doing and used a couple of cuts off Joanne. Yeah, if they did John Wayne, like that would have been yeah. kind of the ridiculous sort of like she does more of like acoustic pop and then all yeah. of a sudden like she's doing like country dance. Pop. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been natural. Twang pop. Mm hmm. My favorite thing, and I like this song too, is uh, Brittany. You re- you really liked one of the songs that's supposed is... to be that is supposed to be like the cheesy pop song. Uh, yeah. Why did you do that? And w- which Diane Warren helped write, by the way. Yes. But let's hear why did you do that? Which which I like too. It, I think it's more that it has this lyric about like how could you come in here with an ass like that, which is meant to be. I think it's more about the lyric being like every part of it is to, yeah. very good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's hear that. Why do you look so good in those jeans? Why'd you come around me with an ass like that? You're making all my thoughts obscene. I mean, it is good. I mean, they obviously... It's not like they were trying to make it bad. I think they were actually trying to make it as good as possible, but just a little tacky. (laughs) I think the thing is, the first time I watched it, I was very much like, this is kind of a weird message, and I think also kind of insulting to Gaga, who this the music that the pop songs sound like kind of fame era Gaga, like a little bit less you know, nuanced and kind of trailblazing as those pop songs were, but it does sound very similar to that. And then after watching it again last night and kind of seeing a lot of the smaller moments with Jackson and Allie, it does seem like it's, they're trying to make more of a message about the idea that the industry changes artists and that's what Jackson was worried about. And I think it did seem like he did enjoy a lot of her songs. I think he was just worried because she dyed her hair and she didn't really want to and the manager first brought up to her and things like that. But it's also depicted like she that she didn't really want to have to learn to dance. That she right. didn't want to have. There's a lot of things that were being thrown at her, and I think it was more about the industry versus the genre. But it's hard not to conflate those two things together in the film because there's no like there's no scene connecting those two. No, things. and I think filmmaking wise, I realize you have to be very economic in the second act to get right. her to like you know the Grammys and stardom and all that stuff. Stuff, but like. I feel it would have been so much more effective if you'd seen them chipping away at her persona a little bit at a time so that it wasn't just like, hey, you do this, now do something that's 180 degrees different, here are your Grammy nominations. Yeah, and there's a great scene later where they talk and she you see her very early in the film, she has a notebook where she writes all of her songs and there's a scene later where she finds a song of his that he had written to put in the notebook for her to find again because she had clearly not been going back to those songs that she had written. So I think, I do think they're trying to really make an idea of like he's worried that she's just losing touch with herself as an artist and he's trying to he's trying to be as supportive as someone who has very 
you know, deep emotional trauma and addiction issues can be at that time. But like, yeah, we've talked about the jealousy aspect in the older versions of this. And there, without giving too much away, there's a scene on a rooftop in Los Angeles mm-hmm. where he sort of counsels her and says, like, whatever you do, you've got something special and authentic and don't ever let them take that away from you because they will try. But mm-hmm. you have to keep that. you got to keep that flame burning. And um, and that's when that's when venom actually drops down <laughs> and takes over one of the bodies. Up, yes. But, but yeah. we didn't want it. That's what yeah. I think what you're worried about about spoiling. That's why yeah. all the Gaga fans have been putting those like horrible, you know, bad reviews about Venom is because of the <laughs> Venom crossover thing. It's a spoiler now. <laughs> now everyone knows. No, I think, and that's that's really to me that was the crux of that whole change. Where it's not that he's jealous of her and he's bitter, and that's why he's got to go back into booze. It's that he really is worried that, like, you have something special and these people are so, you know, people like you are so rare. These people want to take this from you, but you're you're a hothouse flower. And, like, please don't lose that. Yeah. See, no, but I, I really think that there's another level to it, which is, and this is where it gets into an interesting place of, like, critique. And it would be, it, I'm, I'd love to talk to Gaga about this. And hopefully I will. What he's also feeling, and it's akin to jealousy, is... He thinks her music is kind of garbage and she gets a best new artist nomination at, uh, at the Grammys and he's saying I just don't get it. And so part of it is he's feeling like this world is re- she's being rewarded for the yep. wrong thing and that's yep. very akin to jealousy and that's where the move that's where the movie sort of you could definitely argue that the movie agrees with his critique. Yeah. And to add an, another level when he d- the only times he does insult her music are when he is blackout drunk i will say that too that was why that's why i'm kind of like i don't know what they were trying to do because i can't tell if they're trying to like do like the vapid music thing versus the industry is right exactly so that's like that was kind of the confusing part because like when he's sober he's like this is great and then when he's like (laughs) of course it could be a truth teller when he's drunk exactly but but he he said before congress that he was never blackout drunk and i i I believe him (laughs) um you know we were going over some details and it shouldn't be lost in there that again this movie's amazing gaga as gene simmons said in a typo ridden twitter post should and and almost certainly will get an Oscar nomination. Bradley Cooper will probably get an Oscar nomination for, for both acting and directing. I'm sure he'll get a Best Picture nomination. This is one of the movies mm-hmm. of the year. The music is going to become, I think, iconic. Uh, Brittany, you were saying there's at least one potential hit on there, maybe. Yeah. Besides the the, the ass song. I mean, that one should yeah. definitely, that yeah. should go number world, one. Yeah. In a perfect world, that would be everywhere. Um, I think Look What I Found, which is a great sort of mid-moment between the sort of rootsier moment where Allie's touring with Jackson and playing the more country rock songs to her pop career. It's kind of that really great mid like midsection between those two genres for her. And the music is as a whole very, very good. Yeah, like, it's great. Yeah. It's mostly Gaga. Um she wrote most of the soundtrack. Bradley Cooper and Lucas Nelson co wrote a lot of their songs except for Maybe It's Time and Gaga worked on a couple of the songs for Cooper as well. Uh, Mark Ronson worked on Shallow. Diane Warren wrote Why'd You Do That? And Hillary Lindsay, who has covered a lot of big country hits, um, she worked on the kind of pivotal final song, as well as a couple of the other Gaga songs. And there's a Julia Michaels, Justin Tranter joint. There's like, yeah. a, basically, it's like, a, you know, it's, they really, they really brought it as far as the talent. But it's, it's Gaga all over, though. Yeah, oh, for sure. Time. And that's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's, that's the talent you need, really. And let's, uh, let's hear Look What I Found. I'm alone in my house I'm out on 
Oh, right. This is the one we see her record. It's, yes. the, it's this scene where she can't. Uh, sorry, sorry to spoil the movie. It's like she has. She's having trouble like finding the vibe of the song, and then it's suggested as worked for Aretha Franklin. You have to play piano at the, at the same time as you yeah. sing, and then you find your vibe. But again, it's it's you cannot overstate what a massive and triumphant moment this is for Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, you come away. And again, I you know I had the experience very early in her career, and then again, of watching, of realizing, kind of what this movie does, which is like you know she just starts singing, and you're like holy shit, and that is I was fortunate enough to have that experience uh, you know a bunch of times, and it's like so that that's why I'm never surprised when things go well for her because mm-hmm. it, this is a fantastically talented human being. You yeah, know? and I mean just to briefly go through it, what the last few years for Gaga have looked like and leading up to this moment it does feel so it feels even more earned and even more incredible to see her succeed not only in writing an incredible soundtrack but also just like acting her ass off in this film and having such a great performance is I mean the last couple of albums I mean she's been kind of like I don't want to say they were bad because I think Joanne and Art Pop are incredible but I think they were you know people were still trying to figure out when when the next great fame monster moment would be for Gaga. And I think a lot of waiting, a lot of changing for her, a lot of genre shifting, a lot of her experimenting with a lot of different things. We've seen her, she won a Golden Globe for American Horror Story. She got an Oscar nomination for Till It Happens to You with Diane Warren. I mean, there's a lot of really big highlights, but I think for her music career, we have been kind of waiting for peak Gaga again. And I think this not only is the, performance great but to see her writing songs that are as powerful as these are that really feel like you know gaga at her best is fantastic and it wouldn't have as much impact as you said if there hadn't been a little bit of of slight walking in the wilderness for a Mm -hmm. few years and you know when she walks up and accepts her best actress (laughs) trophy because i I think we all kind of feel it's actually gonna (laughs) happen i mean personally i was like overwhelmed with goosebumps in the moment when she's brought out on stage in, in the movie i, I just yeah. thought it was it was if I, I may have teared up a little bit too it was just like which is the it, most sentimental part of that movie and it still works like gangbusters mm-hmm. still, well you know what if that scene doesn't work then you don't have your movie good point yeah. and so and it, the song it, that they have for it i mean it it all it's works so well together yeah i mean it, it was actually you know what that was one of the the greatest mo- movie moments i can remember in a theater of in the past few years like i thought it was like you're levitating out of your seat mm-hmm. it was just because it's like what's the point of movies <laughs> period if you can't do a scene like that are we so cynical that well, we can't make a scene imagine like that? imagine sitting in a theater in toronto with like 300 members of the press like all cynical film press people and then that song comes on and you could literally feel everybody in the audience just go <gasps> like this incredible inhalation yeah and so Gaga's probably going to have an album out, I presume, uh, you know, next year. And yeah, she has the Vegas residency starting in December and then Oscar and Grammy season, which I think she will probably sweep with this. If And if, if there's an album, that, there's going to be tremendous pressure to have an album that that, you know, sort of rises off of this and mm-hmm. they, and it's gonna have to follow this album because this is the album in itself that i think is is gonna be a big hit but i mean imagine if 
you know, she wins the Oscar and then has a new album ready that's like killer. Yeah. Then we have, you know, it, it is it is the, the age of, of Gaga <laughs> is upon us. I hope she treats us all well in her reign. <laughs> but and, and, you know, in the old days, Bradley Cooper would be full on getting a record deal right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like I, I just I don't think it really works like well, that anymore. He but did it, train to be a professional musician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where's the tour, Bradley? <laughs> Where's the Vegas residency? <laughs> you know, back in the day, like, you know, if Bruce Willis could have, a, a, you know, could have could make like three albums. Let's no, we not, don't talk let's not about invoke that. that, shall we? <laughs> we're, we're not gonna. Bru- well. All right, that was Bruno. That wasn't uh, that, <laughs> that was Bruno. Bruno. <laughs> he played a wicked blues harp. <laughs> but in short, great movie. Like in- perfect in- film. Instantly, instantly iconic. A near- <laughs> the first hour is perfect. I'm, I'm not saying I was misquoted, but <laughs> it was Dave Fear talking. When when Gaga was going to the premiere and she wore the incredible dress, I tweeted the I've never before really wanted to say yes, Queen, but that 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 genuinely was like you know like the, the new hell. meme is get the get the Oscar Gaga as everyone is screaming at her in Toronto. <laughs> so there we go. So this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt, and we're in the studio with David Fear and Brittany Spanos. Thanks for being here. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.